Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be looking at the end of Genesis 21. We're going to start in verse 28, and God willing, we'll make it down through verse 34 here. I don't see why we shouldn't. So we have been talking about this whole idea of seeking peace and pursuing it, this whole narrative between Abraham and Abimelech. Of course, Abimelech has reason not to trust Abraham because of what Abraham did in deceiving him uh, with regards to his wife and how the Lord interacted with them there. And so he asked Abraham to to swear an oath with him. And so that happens. And we saw in verses 22 to 24 that believers should be willing to work with reasonable requests of others. And if Abraham's going to dwell in the land that Abimelech rules over, then it stands to reason that there would be some kind of treaty or oath or something like that. So he's willing to work with them. Then in verses 25 to 27, that believers should try to work to repair peace when it is endangered. So after this oath occurs, we have uh, this incident that happens between Abimelech's servants and Uh, this well that is Abraham's. They had seized the well and Abraham says, hey, this is not cool. So he goes to uh, Abimelech and and they begin to work it out. And so he says to him, uh, then he makes a covenant with him. He says, you know, we're going to do this. So he's trying to work to repair the peace when it has been endangered. Well, that brings us to verse 28. And we read after this verse 27, right? He is going to, he's purposing to, to enact this covenant and to cut the covenant. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, two men, and the two men made a covenant. Now we're going to find out the details of that. Verse 28, Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Now, we'll stop right there and discuss very briefly here that serious peace will come with serious cost. To cut a covenant, there has to be the sacrifice of an animal. The cutting means there is blood being spilled. And remember how all of that works when a covenant happens and the terms are applied. Basically says, if either party transgresses the terms of the covenant, may it be done to me what was done to these animals that are here as a witness uh, to this oath. Uh, this covenant that has been cut. Serious peace will come with serious costs. Now, it seems that the animals that we see in verse 27 may be different than the seven uh, that we see here in this text, right? Uh, In verse 28, because in verse 27, Abraham took sheep and oxen and he gave them to Abimelech and the two made a covenant. Now, are those giving them or the cutting obviously involves a sacrifice, but then we have these lambs, which are part of the sheep. So I think that there are some animals that were sacrificed. That's going to be a cost. But now there are these seven lambs 
And we can really deduce that the oxen that we see in verse 27 were probably used in the cutting of the covenant and the sheep, the lambs, the ewe lambs are the gift that accompanies that as well. So in this, Abraham shows goodwill, but also sincerity. He made the statement that he had dug the well. He's making a claim in, and now he's willing to back that up. He could simply stand his ground on his word, but instead he offers to the king seven ewe lambs. And the purpose of the gift is questioned and then explained in our text because he sets them apart from his flock. Abimelech questions that. What's the meaning of these? The explanation comes in verse 30. These seven ewe lambs will, uh, that you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. In other words, he is saying, I am offering you something to accompany my word. In other words, I've made the claim and I'm willing to up the ante and to make a personal expenditure here to show you how serious I am with this. It's not just a he said, she said type of deal. I I really mean this and I'm willing to stake my integrity on it at a cost to myself that you may witness for me that I dug this well. Just so you know, I'm not going back on the oath that I would do you no harm. I'm not trying to stir up controversy as in the beginning of this encounter here. I need you to know that when I approached you about this little skirmish that has arisen over this well, that when I said, this is my well, I really mean it. And this is all I can do. I don't have a land contract, but I'm giving you something that costs me quite a bit of money here, uh, you know, or a a portion of his wealth. That is the (laughs) money. The currency is the animals in that day. And he's saying, here, may this be the testimony of my witness that I am the one who did that. So serious peace will come with serious cost. And I would just say by, you know, way of application and pondering this, you know, we could, it's fairly easy to get to the bottom of this text, but the question that we have is when peace is on the line, when there is controversy, when there is something that needs to be settled, there's a dispute or something like that, which side do you fall on? And I can ask myself the same question. I, I have many children that the Lord has blessed me with, and occasionally we see skirmishes uh, that arise between them and arguments. And one of the things that I've noticed with children, and this carries into adults as well, is that, you know, if there has been a wrong, usually both sides are unwilling uh, to, to budge or to bend or, you know, anything to give way. And, and like I said, I see this in adults as well. I know that it takes a great amount of humility when a husband and wife are arguing. I have personally witnessed this. And I don't want to incriminate, you know, anybody too much on this. So I'll just speak in generalities. Uh, but, you know, it you can get to the point in, uh, let's say, a heated discussion with your spouse. You can get to the point where it's quickly become obvious that neither is going to budge. And at that point, you have to look beyond you know, your view and the other person's view. And you have to say, okay, if we're going to come to resolution on this, somebody's going to have to give. Somebody has to do it. Now, if both are being absolutely obedient, humble Christians, then we should be rushing to, to you know, who's going to outdo one another in, in this. Well, 
That's not always the case. Uh, maybe it is for you. Maybe I am the lone person in the world who, you know, as am willing to say that I am not perfect and I, I mess up all the time. Um, I think that I can give Paul a run for his money in first Timothy one fifteen. you know, he wrote that nearly 2000 years ago. And the only reason he could write that was because I hadn't been born yet. <laughs> and of course I'm referring to the text where he says that he is the chief of sinners. And, and I say that in jest, but I recognize that, you know, I still carry about the sin nature. I still battle it. I understand that. And when we come to a place where there's conflict and where we're just going around and around and neither of us is giving up, at some point, somebody has to decide that they're going to step up and make the sacrifice. And, and that's just an application, okay? But it's, it's really neat to see here because this could have easily devolved into something, you know, that lasted a lot longer, that, uh, that progressed much farther. Uh, all of those aspects there, they could be true of this text, but rather than doing that, we see a de-escalation when Abraham comes up, states the truth, and says, okay, I'm willing to pursue peace even if it costs me something. Sometimes the cost isn't going to be monetary. Sometimes the cost is humility. You know, how much do we stake in our pride? Like, you know, when spouses are, are in this process, when, when children are doing this, you know, there's not a lot in a monetary way that's invested in that, but there's pride on the line and you have to swallow your pride and you have to humble yourself just like we're commanded to do in scripture. And sometimes that can be the cost. If you want peace, it's going to come at a cost and you have to be willing uh, to pay that price. And so you know, this isn't look at the other person. When I bring up this situation and I'm the, I'm one of the parties involved in this illustration, I'm not talking about the other, the person on the other side of this argument. I'm looking at myself and I can, I can see there are times where I've hardened my heart and I have just, you know, been unwilling to budge. And then it might be an hour or two or maybe, you know, several hours. And that's not cool. I mean, you know, then all kinds of other scriptural admonitions fall into place here. Like, you know, be angry and sin not. Well, that's not righteous anger. So I already violated that part. And then do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Well, you know, how long are you going to let it go? How long are you going to sit on your pride before you swallow that pride and go and in humility and the cost of humility and seek reconciliation and forgiveness? Very, very important things. And we see this coming, obviously, to play here with Abraham. Serious peace comes with a serious cost. So he explains it. It's questioned. It's explained. Now in verse 31 through the end of the chapter, uh, we see the last principle from this little section of narrative here emerge, and that is this. It is the duty of believers to continue living for peace according to their word. You give your word, you not only swear an oath and then you cut a covenant, then you give a gift. Now you have a duty to live according to your word. Verse 31, therefore that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. 
It's the duty of believers to continue living for peace according to their words. We see this enduring reminder of Abraham and Abimelech's words. There's an enduring reminder. Because remember, the object that's in question here, the object of controversy, is a well. Abimelech's men had come, and this is a well that Abraham had dug. It's his well. And now the well is renamed. Uh, This dispute takes place there at the well, and now they name it Beersheba. And that name, Beersheba, means well of seven. What's the seven? The seven is the seven ewe lambs that were given to Abimelech, and the well is the well in question. So every time while Abraham is alive and his descendants after him, now think about this as well, putting this in perspective, you have to recognize Moses is the, the author, right? Or some people say compiler, but under divine inspiration and guidance, he's compiling these things and, and writing them down under the direction and inspiration of God. Moses isn't an eyewitness. He's not an eyewitness. <laughs> and He's writing this for the people during the Exodus. Moses' time on earth is leading the people out of Egypt after their 400 years there into the wilderness. That's the Exodus from Egypt, marching towards the promised land. And they would have entered into the promised land except for Moses' disobedience. Now, the certain generation that grumbled against God they had their issues and they were going to be blotted out. But, uh, you know, Moses wasn't under that first part of the curse until he struck the rock the second time when he was told to speak to it. Then he forfeited the right to step into the promised land. But you you remember all that. The point is, is that he's there at that time. You know, they don't go into the land of Egypt until long after Abraham. This is during uh, this is during Jacob's years, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. Israel goes into the land of Egypt, into the land of Goshen, where they settle, right? You remember this. This is all at the end of the book of Genesis. He goes in there in his old age. He has to live for several years and see Joseph and his children and all that. Abraham's long after, you know, he's long out of the scene at this point. But The name Beersheba, I say all that, the name Beersheba persists to the time that Moses is writing this. That's the fascinating part, you know, that I find when I I go back and remind myself of these things in the scripture as I'm reading them. Because the people of Israel, as they're out in the desert for these 40 years and God is giving them scripture, he's giving them the law, uh, they're instituting the, you know, tabernacle, early pre-temple worship, right? You know, the tabernacle is a figure of the temple. You know, the temple is going to have all the same furnishings and the same sort of layout, except the temple later on will be permanent. The tabernacle is movable, but the principle is still there that when it's all set up, this represents the dwelling place of God. And now he's giving them their history. He's giving them his law. He's giving him his standard, all of these things. And as they are looking at the history of their forefather, you know, how did Israel become this nation that was so despised by the Egyptians and hated by these other nations? And uh, God tells us to be separate from these other nations. And we're going to go in and we're going to drive the Philistines out. They're going to be our enemies. And here's Abraham dwelling with the Philistines. You know, how did all this happen? Well, here's this place over here as they're going to get into the promised land, Beersheba. Wow. Well, in the language, as soon as you hear Beersheba, you're going to think, well of seven. 
oh yeah, there was this story. You know, we know it in Genesis 21, where Abraham and the king of the land, Abimelech, they swore an oath to each other and they cut a covenant. And there the the dispute was over this well. And Abraham settled that and they affirmed and committed to peace with one another. And he gave Abimelech seven ewe lambs. It's just incredible because now this is a reminder to them hundreds of years later that this is what took place. It's really quite incredible. And I would just point out too that, you know, Beersheba, we have to look into that a little bit to discern the name, but literally, if we were going to do the same in English, it would be, it would be like literally calling the place well of seven. And so we kind of see a little bit of that in early American history with some of the long names of the pilgrims and their children, where their, their name might be like an entire phrase or sentence or something about, you know, the, the long suffering of God or his mercy or something like that. And we've really moved away from that. And we have to do a lot of research to find out what names mean because they're usually uh, the names that we take for ourselves are actually rooted in some other language. And so we don't know what they mean. And, uh, you know, that's it's really to our shame. I mean, my first name is Matthew. It means gift of God. Well, when you hear the name Matthew, you don't know that that's what it means. Uh, you have to dig into that a little bit. And that's all I'm trying to say. I think it's probably not for the best that we've moved away from names and their meanings. I actually have a recent story of that. A friend of mine, we were chatting, this is a few weeks ago, and he has a newborn, a very young one in the house, and his name is Theo. He calls him Theo. I said, oh, that's a great name. And I said, of course, that would be short for Theodore, right? And uh, he said, yes, that's correct. And I said, well, that's, that's an even better name, you know, because Theodore also means gift of God, different language, by the way. But that one's fairly easy to put together without even pulling up a, a baby name book because Theo, Theos, means God and Dore or Doron in Greek is gift. So you, in the Greek language, Theodore is gift of God. It's pretty easy to discern that. And I say all that because the father didn't even know that that's what his son's name meant. They just liked the sound of it. They liked what it was going to be shortened to call him Theo. And then once he found that out, he was delighted actually. So that was a good thing. And we had a, we had a good talk about that, but they didn't even consider that when they were naming their son. And like I said, we've kind of moved away from that. I think names are, and, and their meanings are, are very important and it's, it's good that we remember those. And, and then we see that the terms remain even though both parties leave, right? They made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. They go their separate way. Abraham stays in the area, plants a tree. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is the terms of the covenant and the terms of the oath remain. And then there's a personal reminder I think that that uh, is evident here with the planting of this tree, this tamarisk tree, uh, indicates a constant supply of water. Why would you plant a tree? Well, in a desert, in an arid climate, a tree is not going to do very well. But when you plant a tree near water, it is a reminder to you that you're near a water source because now the tree can live and thrive in in an inhospitable area. And when he sees that tree, it will be a reminder not only of the water, but that life has come from it. 
uh, indicates also a commitment to stay in the land. If he's going to plant that tree, tend and care for it, he's going to stay, which also means he's going to honor his word. And we can also deduce from this that God would continue to bless Abraham with water and Abraham would continue to call upon the Lord. Uh, You know, God's already said that he's going to do that, but this is just a sign of that. And of course, we see that here. He plants the tamarisk tree and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. El Olam, everlasting God. In other words, that God is the one who lives beyond his life and can make sure that all the promises that he has made to Abraham, not only regarding Abraham's life, but his descendants after him and their descendants after them and so forth and so forth into God's plan for eternity, he can bring that to pass. How can he do that? Because he is the everlasting God. And because of that promise, we can kind of give a summary statement of all the rest of Abraham's days there, even though we're going to focus in on some uh, certain events in the life of Isaac. And and later on, we we can give this summary statement that we find in verse 34, and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. There's an enduring blessing because he kept his word. And it is fulfilling. It's not only fulfilling personally, uh, it's honoring to the Lord, it's pleasing in his sight, but it it is very personally and richly rewarding uh, when we make something that costs us, you know, there's a personal sacrifice involved, and then we follow through with it. And we see that it is very rewarding for Abraham to be able to do these things and to live peacefully in that land. Well, that's all we have time for. We finish this narrative here with Abraham and Abimelech. We'll pick it up in our next episode as we jump in to Genesis 22. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.